two chapter five of my own story by emmeline pankhurst this librivox recording is in the public domain read by k hand four years of peaceful militancy chapter five between the time of the arrest in june and the handing down of the absurd decision of the lord chief justice that although we as subjects possessed the rights of petition yet we had committed an offence in exercising that right nearly six months had passed in that interval certain grave developments had lifted the militant movement on to a new and more heroic plane it will be remembered that a week before our deputation to test the charles the second act mrs wallace dunlap had been sent to prison for one month for stamping an extract from the bill of rights on the stone walls of st stephen's hall on arriving at holloway on friday evening july second she sent for the governor and demanded of him that she be treated as a political offender the governor replied that he had no power to alter the sentence of the magistrate whereupon miss wallace dunlop informed him that it was the unalterable resolution of the suffragettes never again to submit to the prison treatment given to ordinary offenders against the law therefore she should if placed in the second division as a common criminal refuse to touch food until the government yielded her point it is hardly likely that the government or the prison authorities realized the seriousness of Miss Wallace Dunlop's action, or the heroic mold of the suffragette's character. At all events, the Home Secretary paid no attention to the letter sent him by the prisoner, in which she explained simply, but clearly, her motives for her desperate act, and the prison authorities did nothing except seek means of breaking down her resistance. The ordinary prison diet was replaced by the most tempting food, and this, instead of being brought to her cell at intervals, was kept there night and day, but always untouched. Several times daily the doctor came to feel her pulse and observe her growing weakness. The doctor, as well as the governor and the wardress, argued, coaxed, and threatened, but without effect. The week passed without any sign of surrender on the part of the prisoner. On Friday the doctor reported that she was rapidly reaching a point at which death might at any time supervene. Hurried conferences were carried on between the prison and the home office, and that evening, June 8th, Miss Wallace Dunlop was sent home, having served one-fourth of her sentence, and having ignored completely all the terms of her imprisonment. On the day of her release, the fourteen women who had been convicted of window-breaking received their sentences. In learning of Miss Wallace Dunlop's act, they, as they were being taken to Holloway in the prison van, held a consultation and agreed to follow her example arrived at holloway they at once informed the officials that they would not give up any of their belongings neither would they put on prison clothing perform prison labor eat prison food or keep the rule of silence the governor agreed for the moment to allow them to retain their property and to wear their own clothing but he told them that they had committed an act of mutiny and that he would have to so charge them at the next visit of the magistrates the women then addressed petitions to the home secretary demanding that they be given the prison treatment universally allowed political offenders they decided to postpone the hunger strike until the home secretary had had time to reply meanwhile after a vain appeal for more fresh air for the weather was stiflingly hot the women committed one more act of mutiny they broke the windows of their cells we learned this from the prisoners themselves several days after they had gone to prison my daughter christabel and mrs Tuke, filled with an anxiety for their fate gained admission to an upper story room of a house overlooking the prison calling at the top of their voices and waving a flag of the union they succeeded in attracting the prisoners attention the women thrust their arms through the broken panes waving handkerchiefs vote for women badges anything they could get a hold of and in a few shouted words told their tale that same day the visiting magistrates arrived and the mutineers were sentenced to terms of seven to ten days of solitary confinement in the punishment cells in these frightful cells dark unclean dripping with moisture prisoners resolutely hunger struck 
At the end of five days, one of the women was reduced to such a condition that the Home Secretary ordered her released. The next day several more were released, and before the end of the week the last of the fourteen had gained their liberty. The affair excited the greatest sympathy all over England, sympathy which Mr. Gladstone tried to divert by charging two of the prisoners with kicking and biting the wardress. In spite of their vigorous denials, these two women were sentenced, on these charges, one to ten days and the other to a month in prison. Although still very weak from the previous hunger strike, they at once entered upon a second hunger strike and in three days had to be released. After this, each succeeding batch of suffragette prisoners, unless otherwise directed, followed the example of these heroic rebels. The prison officials, seeing their authority vanish, were panic-stricken. Holloway and other women's prisons throughout the kingdom became perfect dens of violence and brutality. Hear the account given by Lucy Burns of her experience. We remained quite still when ordered to undress, and when they told us to proceed to our cells, we linked arms and stood with our backs to the wall. The governor blew his whistle, and a great crowd of wardresses appeared, falling upon us, forcing us apart, and dragging us toward the cells. I think I had twelve wardresses for my share, and among them they managed to trip me so that I fell helplessly to the floor. One of the wardresses grasped me by my hair, wound a long braid around her wrist, and literally dragged me along the ground. In the cell they fairly ripped the clothing from my back, forcing on me one coarse cotton garment and throwing others on the bed for me to put on myself. Left alone, exhausted by the dreadful experience, I lay for a time gasping and shivering on the floor. By and by, a wardress came to the door and threw me a blanket. This I wrapped around me, for I was chilled to the bone by this time. The single cotton garment and the rough blanket were all the clothes I wore during my stay in prison. Most of the prisoners refused everything but the blanket. According to the agreement, we all broke our windows and were immediately dragged off to the punishment cells. There we hunger-struck, and after enduring great misery for nearly a week, we were one by one released. How simply they tell it! after enduring great misery. But no one who has not gone through the awful experience of the hunger strike can have any idea of how great that misery is. In an ordinary cell it is great enough. In the unspeakable squalor of the punishment cells it is worse. The actual hunger pangs last only about twenty-four hours with most prisoners. I generally suffer the most on the second day. After that there is no very desperate craving for food. Weakness and mental depression take its place. Great disturbances of digestion divert the desire for food to a longing for relief from pain. Often there is intense headache with fits of dizziness or slight delirium. Complete exhaustion and a feeling of isolation from earth mark the final stages of the ordeal. Recovery is often protracted, and entire recovery of normal health is sometimes discouragingly slow. The first hunger strike occurred in early July. In the two months that followed, scores of women adopted the same form of protest against a government who would not recognize the political character of their offenses. In some cases, the hunger strikes were treated with unexampled cruelty. Delicate women were sentenced, not only to solitary confinement, but to wear handcuffs for twenty-four hours at a stretch. One woman, on refusing prison clothes, was put into a straight waistcoat. The irony of all this appears the greater when it is considered that, at this precise time, the leaders of the Liberal Party in the House of Commons were in the midst of their first campaign against the veto power of the Lords. On September 17th, a great meeting was held in Birmingham, on which occasion Mr. Asquith was to throw down his challenge to the Lords and to announce that their veto was to be abolished, leaving the people's will paramount in England. Of course, the suffragettes seized this opportunity for a demonstration. This course was perfectly logical denied the right of petition shut out now from every cabinet minister's meeting the women were forced to take whatever means that remained to urge their cause upon the government mrs mary lee and a group of birmingham members addressed a warning to the public not to attend mr asquith's meeting as disturbances were likely to happen 
from the time that the prime minister and his cabinet left the house of commons until the train drew into the station at birmingham they were completely surrounded with detectives and policemen precautions taken to guard mr asquith have never been equalled except in the case of the Tsar during outbreaks of revolution in russia from the station he was taken by an underground passage a quarter of a mile in length to his hotel where he dined in solitary state after having been carried upstairs in a luggage lift escorted to the bingley hall by a strong guard of mounted police he was so fearful of encountering the suffragettes that he entered by a side door the hall was guarded as for a siege over the glass roof a thick tarpaulin had been stretched tall ladders were placed on either side of the building and a fireman's hose were laid in readiness not to extinguish fires but to play upon the suffragettes should they appear at an inaccessible spot on the roof the streets on every hand were barricaded and police and regiments were drawn up to defend the barricades against the onslaughts of the women nobody was allowed to pass the barricades without showing his entrance tickets to long files of police and then the ticket holders were squeezed through the narrow doors one by one their precautions were in vain for the determined suffragettes found more than one way in which to turn mr asquith's triumph into a fiasco although no women gained access to the hall there were plenty of men sympathizers present and before the meeting had proceeded far thirteen men had been violently thrown out for reminding the prime minister that the people whose right to govern he was professing to uphold included women as well as men outside mingling in the vast crowds bands of women attacked the barricades the outer barricades being thrown down in spite of the thousands of police from the roof of a neighboring house mrs lee and charlotte marsh tore up dozens of slates and threw them on the roof of bingley hall and in the streets below taking care however to strike no one as mr asquith drove away the women hurled slates at the guarded motor car the fire hose was brought forth and the firemen were ordered to turn the water on the women they refused to their credit be it said but the police infuriated by their failure to keep the peace did not scruple to play the cold water on the women as they crouched and clung to the dangerous slope of the roof roughs in the streets flung bricks at them drawing blood eventually the women were dragged down by the police and in their dripping garments marched through the streets to the police station the suffragettes who had rushed the barricades and flung stones at mr asquith's departing train received sentences from a fortnight to one month but miss larsh and mrs lee were sent to prison for three and four months respectively all of the prisoners adopted the hunger strike as we knew they would several days later we were horrified to read in the newspapers that these prisoners were being forcibly fed by means of a rubber tube thrust into the stomach members of the union applied at once both at the prison and at the home office to learn the truth of the report but all information was refused on the following monday at our request mr keir hardy at question time in the house insisted on information from the government mr masterson speaking for the home secretary reluctantly admitted that in order to preserve the dignity of the government and at the same time save the lives of the prisoners hospital treatment was being administered hospital treatment was the term used to draw attention from one of the most disgusting and brutal expedients ever resorted to by prison authorities no law allows it except in the case of persons certified to be insane and even then when the operation is performed by skilled nursing attendants under the direction of skilled medical men it cannot be called safe in fact the asylum cases usually die after a short time the lancet perhaps the best-known medical journal in the language published a long list of opinions from distinguished physicians and surgeons who condemned the practice as applied to the suffrage prisoners as unworthy of civilization one physician told of a case which had come under his observation in which death had occurred almost as soon as the tube had been inserted another cited a case where the tongue twisted behind the feeding tube had in the struggle been almost bitten off cases where food had been injected into the lungs were not unknown mr c mansell mullin m d f r c s wrote to the times that as a hospital surgeon of more than thirty years experience he desired indignantly to protest against the government's term hospital treatment in connection with the forcible feeding of women 
It was a foul libel, he declared, for violence and brutality have no place in hospitals. A memorial signed by 116 well-known physicians was addressed to the Prime Minister protesting against the practice of forcible feeding, and pointing out to him in detail the grave dangers attaching to it. So much for medical testimony against a form of brutality, which continued and still continues in our English prisons, as a punishment for women who are there for conscience's sake. As for the testimony of the victims, it makes a volume of the most revolting sort. Mrs. Lee, the first victim, is a woman of sturdy constitution, else she could scarcely have survived the experience. Thrown into Birmingham prison after the Asquith demonstration, she had broken the windows of her cell, and as a punishment was sent to a dark and cold punishment cell. Her hands were handcuffed behind her during the day, and at night in front of her body with the palms out. She refused to touch the food that was brought to her, and three days after her arrival she was taken to the doctor's room. What she saw was enough to terrify the bravest. In the center of the room was a stout chair resting on a cotton sheet. Against the wall, as if ready for action, stood four wardresses. The junior doctor was also on hand. The senior doctor spoke, saying, Listen carefully to what I have to say. I have orders from my superior officers that you are not to be released even on medical grounds. If you still refrain from food, I must take other measures to compel you to take it. Mrs. Lee replied that she did still refuse, and she said further that she knew she could not legally be forcibly fed because an operation could not be performed without the consent of the patient, if sane. The doctor repeated that he had his orders and would carry them out. A number of wardresses then fell upon Mrs. Lee, held her down, and tilted her chair backward. She was so taken by surprise that she could not resist successfully that time. They managed to make her swallow a little food from a feeding cup. Later, two doctors and the wardresses appeared in her cell, forced Mrs. Lee down to the bed, and held her there. To her horror, the doctors produced a rubber tube, two yards in length, and this he began to stuff up her nostril. The pain was so dreadful that she shrieked again and again. Three of the wardresses burst into tears, and the junior doctor begged the other to desist. Having had his orders from the government, the doctor persisted, and the tube was pushed down into the stomach. One of the doctors, standing on a chair and holding the tube high, poured liquid food through a funnel, almost suffocating the poor victim. The drums of my ears, she said afterwards, seemed to be bursting. I could feel the pain to the end of the breastbone. When at last the tube was withdrawn, it felt as if the back of my nose and throat were being torn out with it. In an almost fainting condition, Mrs. Lee was taken back to the punishment cell and laid on her plank bed. The ordeal was renewed day after day. The other prisoners suffered similar experiences. End of Book 2, Chapter 5